We're in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, last week we covered verses 19 through 23, saw some wonderful things there. Tonight we're going to be looking at just verse 24, just verse 24. And the name of this message is, No Pain, No Gain. You'll see what that means as we develop it. Let's, but let's read verse 24 and pray. Paul writes and says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Uh, As you can see, we have a gnarly passage in front of us, so let's ask the Lord to bless our Bible study. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and it's active. And thank you, Lord, that it is correct in everything it declares, everything it says, and everything it teaches. And thank you also, Father, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to instruct us in all things. And so we would ask now, Father, that you would send your Spirit to teach us, to instruct us in the Word, that we might rightly divide it, that we might understand what your Word says, but then beyond that, that you, God, by your Spirit, would make application in our lives. I believe that each one of us here will be challenged by what we hear from your Word humbled by what we hear from your word. And and Lord, we are still tonight ever mindful of our brothers and sisters worldwide that are suffering for the gospel, whose lives are threatened, maybe perhaps even at this moment as they gather on this Sunday. And Lord, we know that it's just a different reality for them. And your word this morning addresses that reality. And so Lord, give us understanding that we might live our lives in the fullness of the gospel and all that that means. And that we might have a heart for those who are suffering for the cause of the kingdom. Teach us. Transform us. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, church. There we go. Two uh, very peculiar phrases in this passage that I want to talk about this evening. The first one is at the beginning of the verse where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Think about what he says there. I rejoice, I'm stoked about my sufferings. Now, to the uh, person who is not a Christian, to the non-believer, the the person that hasn't been saved and born again, that sounds very weird in their ears. Uh, What do you mean that you're stoked about your sufferings, that you rejoice in your sufferings? What does that mean? And even for the Christian who perhaps has not spent much time reading the Bible, uh, is not very mature in their faith yet, their ears hear this and they say, what? I, I see that the Bible talks about rejoicing and suffering, but I don't understand it. What does that mean? I'm so stoked that things are so horrible. It doesn't make any sense. But tonight, through a study of the Word, I I hope that we'll have an understanding why the true Christian must rejoice in sufferings, not by way of compulsion or obligation, but by way of revelation. That is, there is instruction that happens in our lives as we suffer for the cause of the gospel. And there is a work that God does in our lives. And so there's a tremendous value in suffering. But tonight, we're not just talking about any suffering. There's a lot of suffering going on in the world. We've been talking about a very specific type of suffering for a specific cause. Keep that in mind. But I want to deal with first the second peculiar phrase at the end of the verse. Where Paul says, I am filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
Now, to the non-believer, it doesn't mean anything. To the young Christian, not very versed in the Bible, maybe not mature, eh, whatever, what, what, what? But to the mature Christian that, that has an understanding from the Word of God about the atonement, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you hear that and you go, wait a minute, what does that mean? In what way is Paul filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? I don't quite understand that. It's difficult, isn't it? Because wasn't Christ's suffering on the cross enough to atone for our sins? Didn't he pay for our sins completely upon the cross? Is it not a finished work? It is. Jesus said in John 19.30, as he was about to give up his spirit on the cross, to telestai. In other words, it is finished or paid in full. The price for our sins has been paid in full. The work of redemption of mankind is finished. He said in John 17, 4, that he had accomplished all that the Father gave him to do. Doesn't the New Testament speak of Christ paying for our sins completely? It does. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had made purification of sins, past tense, right? When it was complete, we see it denoted here that it is a complete work. Why? Because afterwards he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you understand that you don't sit down until the work is done? You do not sit down until the work is done. This generation, my generation and afterwards, needs to learn that lesson. A little bit of work ethic there. You do not sit down until the work is done. And by the fact that it's communicated to us in the word that Jesus sat down, the work of our redemption is finished, fulfilled, completed, done, paid in full to Telestai. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 14. Speaking of Jesus. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So it appears very clear from Scripture that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to allow us to be forgiven of our sins is completed. It's finished. It's done. That's very clear from Hebrews 10, 12, and 14. Hebrews 1, 3. John 19.30 and John 17.4. We've seen that. It's very clear. And so what we need to do then as we have a difficult text before us to interpret is allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Very important principle, saints. To allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That is to say, when you come across a section in the Bible that is perplexing to you, hard to understand, you don't quite get it. Look around in the Bible for other verses that speak to that issue, that provide some context and some insight. You always want to study the Word of God in context. If you're looking at a verse, you look at it in context of the whole passage, the surrounding verses, in context of the chapter, in context of the book, in context of the whole Bible. And you let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so, uh, if you are studying a section of Scripture and you come up with an interpretation for a passage that is in contradiction to another part of the Bible, guess who's wrong? 
You, your interpretation is incorrect. If it's you're wrong or the Bible is wrong, you're wrong. And so if you read a verse and you say, I think it means that, but it seems to contradict other places in Scripture, uh, you need to realign your interpretation there. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Very important principle. So as we apply that principle to this passage, we see that when Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus Christ that it is not possible, according to Scripture, that he means that there was something lacking in the sufferings upon the cross. That can't be what he's talking about. It would contradict the rest of Scripture. And so it's important that we apply that principle because some, failing to do so, have dreamed up all sorts of false doctrines. The Roman Catholic Church, for example... The Roman Catholic Church observed this text and imagined here a reference to the suffering of Christians in a place called purgatory. What they would assert and suggest is that Christ's suffering was not enough to purge us completely from our sins, so Christians must make up what is lacking in Christ's suffering on their behalf by their own suffering after death. That Jesus' blood spilt on the cross was not good enough, precious enough to pay the price for all your sins. And so after you die, Christian, you don't go immediately to heaven, but a place called purgatory where you will suffer to pay for some of your sins. Now that does not seem correct, does it? According to what we've already read in the Bible tonight. That doesn't seem correct at all. And that can't possibly be Paul's point. Because Paul just finished saying in verses 20 through 23, that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to reconcile us to God. Look in verse 20. It says, And through him, that is Jesus, we have been reconciled to God, having made peace through the blood of his cross. In verse 22, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so Paul just finished saying, as we look at it in context, that the cross of Jesus Christ has made peace for us. We have been reconciled. We are being presented as blameless, spotless, beyond reproach. That work is complete. And so for Paul to do an about face and say uh, that Christians have to suffer in a place called purgatory, that would make Paul schizophrenic. He would be contradicting himself verse to verse. The Bible nowhere teaches anything about a place called purgatory. Understand that. The New Testament is very clear that there is nothing that needs to be added to the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Now, I ought to see a smile come upon your face as I say that. There is nothing that you need to add or anyone else can add to the work of Jesus upon the cross for you. That is wonderful because when you wake up tomorrow and sin, it's important that you know that your forgiveness is complete in the Lord. It is very important that you're able to stand firm upon the foundation of Christ Jesus, His atoning death upon the cross, and say, Oh, I blew it again, but I am completely forgiven. I don't have to work it off. I don't have to pay it off. I don't have to try to coerce God or anybody else. I am completely forgiven by the work of the cross. And when I die, I will enter into glory with the Lord. That's wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful, and that is the truth of the Bible. Furthermore, the word afflictions here in our passage, 
Verse 24 is never used in the New Testament to speak of Christ's sufferings upon the cross. When the sufferings upon the cross are spoken of in the New Testament, the terms uh, are used such as his death, his blood, his cross. This word in verse 24, that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This word afflictions means distress, pressure, trouble. It ordinarily refers to the trials of life, not the pains of death. And so it becomes for us very clear here that this peculiar phrase, filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions, has nothing to do with salvation. And Jesus is suffering on the cross for us. You say, uh, very clear, Pastor. I I understand now, uh, 16 minutes later. I get it. So then what does it mean? Well, it's very simple. Paul here is not speaking with regards to salvation, but he's speaking with regards to service. Not with regards to salvation, but with regards to service. Look what he says. Read it carefully. Again, verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Paul says that his sufferings are for the sake of the church, on behalf of the church. Not on behalf of the church for earning salvation, but on behalf of the church by serving the church, both in leading people to salvation and helping them to grow in salvation. We know and we understand that Jesus Christ has won for us entry into the kingdom, but it is the responsibility, it is the privilege, it is the honor, it is the task, the goal of the Christian, the church, to make the proclamation of the kingdom. Christ won us entry, but we are to proclaim the good news of that entry being available to all men. Look what it says in Romans 10, 13 through 15. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a work of the cross. Now here's a work of the church. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or the gospel of good things. How beautiful are the feet that deliver the gospel message. And how are people within your sphere of influence and beyond in the nations, how are they going to hear the wonderful message of the forgiveness that you have experienced unless someone tells them? How can they be told unless someone is sent to tell them? I believe that as we read this verse, someone in this congregation was called tonight. That someone here was called to be a deliverer of the good news. That as we read that, you knew, I've been sent. That's me. I'm being sent out to preach the good news. And beautiful are your feet when you declare the gospel. But we see there, it's very clear that we are to do the preaching of the kingdom. The sad truth is that many Christians will never be involved in kingdom work. Never be involved in sharing, communicating, and living out the gospel. That's not right, but that is reality. That's not good, but that's the way it is. The vast majority of Christians are happy to have salvation, come to church, sit in the pew, listen to the message, sing a little song, and go home. What a bummer that is. If that's your Christianity, uh, you're missing something. In all humility and in all honesty, the Lord has so much more for you. And quite frankly, if that's the totality of your Christianity, it's pretty boring. 
But you see, Christianity is meant to be more. When you are transferred from, or delivered from, rather, the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, you then become an ambassador, a representative. And your responsibility, your honor, your privilege is to communicate in many ways the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. And when you start to do that in any way God gives you opportunity, life gets radical. Christianity becomes real. Things get exciting. When you neglect that, they're not exciting. And there are tremendous promises in the Bible for those who are engaged in kingdom work, for those who put it out there on the line, who risk everything and preach the gospel to others. There are tremendous promises, and one of the most profound ones is that those people will suffer. What? Yeah, there is a promise for people that get involved in kingdom work that they will suffer. Oh, hooray! Let's look at Mark chapter 10 as this is communicated. Mark 10, 28 through 30. It says, Peter began to say to him, that is Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. This is a pre-Pentecost Peter. He's kind of complaining a little bit here and saying, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And the Lord says, Truly I'm saying to you, Peter, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. People like to claim the first part of verse 30. Oh, I'm, I'm giving things to the kingdom and I'm claiming a hundredfold back and Lord, return to me a hundredfold. How about claiming the last part? Oh, Lord, I claim my persecution today, Jesus. Bring it on me. I claim that promise. You just don't hear that often. But it is a promise of Scripture. Further clarified in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. This is after the conversion of Saul. You remember that Paul, who wrote the book of Colossians, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And he was a persecutor of the church. And he was a murderer of Christians. And uh, he had an encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus one day. And after his encounter and after his conversion, the Lord sent someone to minister to him. And here's what Jesus said to that man. He said, go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Wait a minute. What a strange dichotomy. In the first verse there, uh, go to Paul because he's a chosen instrument of mine. And anybody will go, yes, I'm a chosen tool of God. This is awesome. And he's going to preach the gospel before the Gentiles and before kings and before the nation of Israel. Yes. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Oh, wait a minute. There is a promise for those who are involved in the work of kingdom that it will include, it will entail a degree of suffering for the cause of the kingdom in the work of the ministry. And very important now as we tie this together. When the body of Christ suffers in the work of Christ, Christ himself suffers. Again, not in the salvation, but in the service. We see it reflected in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. This is when uh, Saul was knocked down on the road to Damascus. 
And it says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now Saul might have said, Wait a minute, I'm not persecuting Jesus. I'm persecuting the church. But from the perspective of God, when you mess with the church, you mess with the Lord. When you mess with the body, you mess with the head. You mess with the bride, you just mess with the groom. We know that to be true. You mess with my woman, I will kill you. I don't care, I'll kill you. You mess with my bride, I will kill you. On tape, I've threatened you. If you mess with my wife. It's the same thing. The church is the bride of Christ. You mess with the bride, and the Lord is concerned about that. He takes it very personally. Why, Saul, are you persecuting me? He is the head of the church, and we are the body of the church. When the body is afflicted in some way, don't you understand that the head knows about it, and that the head shares in the pain and in the affliction? And so that is exactly what is being spoken of in this peculiar phrase, Adding to that which is, la- or filling up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is as the body serves the Lord in ministry and is persecuted and suffers in the work. That there is an adding to the sufferings of Christ. Not the atoning one, but rather the afflictions. And so when the Christian worker suffers in Christ's work, there is a fellowship that takes place. The head experiencing that which the body experiences. There is a sweetness and a newness and a uniqueness of fellowship. Paul speaks about it in Philippians 3, 8 and 10. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul says that when I followed the Lord and when I got into this thing called ministry, when I started serving him, got active in the kingdom, I left everything behind. But you know what? I count it trash, rubbish in comparison to knowing the Lord. And he says, I want to know the Lord not only in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his suffering. There is communicated in that verse... The reality that when someone in the body suffers in service, there is a uniqueness of fellowship with the Lord that is promised. Speak about that more in a moment. And so throughout history, the servants of Christ have considered it an honor to suffer for the cause of Christ. Uh, Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That it is a privilege not only to be saved, but it is a privilege to suffer in serving the Lord. The disciples, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, did you know that the disciples were flogged for preaching Jesus Christ? You know what it means that they were flogged, don't you? How many of you have seen the Passion of the Christ? Have you seen the Passion of the Christ? then you know what it means. It means that the disciples were stripped naked, that they were tied to this post on the, uh, just over the concrete, just like that, and that Roman soldiers whipped them with a cat of nine tails. That is nine leather strands with pieces of bone and metal woven into it from the back of their neck to the back of their knees. 
the disciples experienced what we saw in the Passion of the Christ, perhaps even worse, for preaching Jesus Christ after his ascension in Jerusalem. They were whipped by the Roman soldiers from the back of their neck to the back of their knees. What was their response to that? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of elders in Israel, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching just Jesus as the Christ. Unbelievable. These men walked away from this encounter with the religious leaders with quivering ribbons of flesh hanging from their back. And as they went away, the Bible says, and it does not lie, that they went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And rather than retreating and nursing their wounds, they went to the temple and from house to house, preaching and teaching the name of Jesus daily. Do you begin to see and you begin to understand that there is something that has been lost on the church in America? We just don't experience things like this. This does not only happen, as we know, 2,000 years ago to the disciples. There are Christians today over 200,000 of them worldwide today who are being beaten for their faith, threatened for their faith, abused for their faith, imprisoned for their faith, their lives threatened for their faith today. It's hard for us to understand here. We don't experience that sort of thing. And yet what they would say is, we are so stoked that we're counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. If we're going to suffer, let it be for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so that is the meaning of that peculiar phrase. Paul in his ministry suffered tremendous things. We learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was beaten with a cat of nine tails three times. That he was beaten with rods five times. That once he was stoned, that is to say he was dragged outside of city walls, stoned with stones about this big, thrown all over his body, and left for dead. That three times he was shipwrecked. That he had been in every sort of danger you could imagine. That he had spent nights out in the deep after being shipwrecked. That he was in dangers from Gentiles and dangers from his countrymen. He was in dangers from robbers. He was in dangers from rivers. He was in all sorts of dangers. He was in hunger. He was in thirst. He had restless, sleepless nights. He was in cold and exposure. And he says, apart from external things, there was a daily pressure of the church upon him. And so Paul says in our passage, Colossians 1.24, that he has suffered immensely in his ministry, but it is on behalf of, it is for the sake of the church, the body, that he might deliver the message of salvation and help people grow in their salvation. And when the body suffers in serving, the head suffers. And there is the filling up of that which is lacking. That's what that passage means. And now we turn to that first peculiar phrase that we spoke of, where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. He says in Romans chapter 5 that we are to exalt in tribulations. What a strong word, exalt in tribulations. 
James writes in the first chapter of his epistle that we are to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. How is that true for the Christian? How does this work out that we are to rejoice in our sufferings, as Paul says here? Why does that work out? Well, before we can answer the reason why, we need to have two points by way of context. The type of suffering that is being addressed in this passage and the type of suffering that we're speaking about right now is suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for the cause of the gospel. Suffering in the service of Christ. That is the particular service or suffering, excuse me, that we're addressing tonight. We are not talking about the suffering that comes from our own silly decisions. We often make bad decisions and we suffer for them. The Bible has warned us of that. You will reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. Don't kid yourself. You will reap what you sow. That is why, Christians, it is so important that we watch what we allow to come into our eyes and our minds and our hearts. Because that which comes in becomes you. And if you fill yourself with filth, then there will be a lack of well-being in you. And from that lack of well-being, you will make poor decisions. And from those poor decisions, you will reap the consequences. That is why it is so important, Christian, that as James 1.27 says, we keep ourselves unstained from the world. That we keep the word of God coming in, the praise of God and the spirit of God, that that would be the outflow of our life. And then we reap of the spirit, we reap good things. But bad decisions that we make because we've allowed ourselves to be filled up with all this junk, that is not the sort of suffering being spoken of here. You make your own mess, you get to deal with your own mess. God has grace for you. God will help us through those things. God is merciful. But the promises that we're speaking about are when you step out to serve Jesus Christ and there comes suffering in the midst of righteousness and service. The other thing we need to know is that when it says, um, I rejoice in my sufferings, it means that we rejoice in the midst of that trial, not because of the trial. In the midst of it, not because of it. We rejoice because of what the sure outcome is, not because of the horror of the situation. It's not as though the disciples went away in Acts chapter 5 that day with flesh hanging from their back saying, Oh, that was awesome. Oh, that's not the idea. The idea is they knew that there would be a work accomplished in their lives and in the lives of others as they suffered for the sake of the gospel. So it's not rejoicing in the horrible thing. It's rejoicing in the faithfulness of God and in the promises of God and in the work of God. And understand that there are things that God can only accomplish in your life through suffering. And so here are some reasons Why suffering is a cause for joy. Number one, suffering brings believers closer to Jesus. Suffering brings believers closer to Jesus. You know that. You know that's true 
from your own life. When things are hunky-dory, we so often are prone to wander and walk away from the Lord. Nah, everything's cool and you just kind of start doing your thing. And then the heat gets turned up a little bit. And, oh, my Jesus, I need you today. You understand? It's like a little kid, my five-year-old son. As long as everything is cool, he's cool. He doesn't need Papa. But as soon as there's some big scary thing comes along, oh, Daddy. That's what Christians often do. It should not be a last resort for us. It's kind of the wrong mindset. Heard a story some time ago about a ship that was sinking. And one of the passengers on the ship ran up to the, uh, the officer's quarters there where the captain was. And she said, Captain, Captain, uh, tell me, is there any hope? How bad? It, what, what's the situation? What can we do? And he said, ma'am, all we can do now is pray. And she said, I didn't know it was that bad. You get it? In other words, people are slow. In other words, Christians often have the idea of, oh, last resort, pray. Things are so bad, now I've got to pray. It's not a biblical attitude. We ought to be praying without ceasing, praying continually. But nevertheless, because we are human, we know and God knows that suffering causes us to draw near to him. And we have that wonderful promise in James chapter 4 that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. What a wonderful promise. And so when the heat gets turned up in your life and you say, oh, I got to get connected with Jesus, he is faithful to draw near to you. And that's what was being referred to in Philippians 3.10 as we looked at it earlier where Paul wrote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There is a uniqueness of fellowship that happens when we share in the sufferings for the cause of the kingdom. We need to know that. Because as I mentioned previously, our brothers and sisters worldwide are suffering for the cause of the gospel tonight. And don't you need to know that there is an abiding, sweet, promised presence of the Lord with them this evening. As fathers have been separated from children, wives separated from husbands, churches separated from their pastors as they're imprisoned, Christians who have been beaten and threatened, we need to know, we've got to understand that there's a promise of Scripture, that there is a uniqueness of fellowship that happens in the midst of that suffering. Second reason why suffering is a cause for joy is because suffering builds our faith and our character. Please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James 1. James 1, starting in verse 2, James writes and says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing, in other words, here's why we have joy. Not because of the trial, but knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then when endurance has its complete work in us, we become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now listen to me. Because Christians are often lacking in something, God will ordain in our lives a degree of suffering. 
to work a work of maturity in us, that our faith might be tested, that we might gain endurance and maturity and completeness in Christ. And so when we are lacking something, the Lord develops in us faith and character through trials and suffering. Recall with me Matthew 14. When Jesus said to the disciples, get into the boat and go to the other side. They got into the boat, they went out onto the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and what came along? A storm. A storm comes. And we know that they got in the boat prior to sunset, and that they were out in this storm now in the evening. And you know the story. Jesus was there on the mountain observing. And in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., darkest before the dawn. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus finally came to them. But because he didn't come until the fourth watch, that means that the disciples were in the boat for some nine hours or more. And it says that the boat, literally in the Greek, was in subjection to the waves, that it came under the waves, that the waves were breaking over the boat and filling the boat. These were not novice uh, boat guys. Many of them were fishermen, had been fishing their whole lives on this lake. They understood boats, they understood being out on the lake in the evening, and they understood storms. But this was no ordinary storm. This was a God-ordained storm to work a work in the hearts and lives of the disciples. And so Jesus says, "Uh, hey boys, get in the boat. Sends them out there knowing that there's a storm. Did he know there was a storm? Hello, he created the storm. All things were created by Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. He made the storm. Hey boys, get in the boat and go to the other side. Makes the storm, here it comes. I want you to notice that he said to them, get to the other side. Very important that you read and hear the promises of God clearly. When he said, get in the boat and go to the other side, that meant I will get you to the other side. I will deliver you. You will get there. God will get us there. But there are some storms, some trials, some tribulations, some lessons in between. And the reason that Jesus left them there for some nine or more hours is because that's how long it took for them to come to the end of themselves, which is the beginning of God. And they were despairing of their lives. And at that moment, at the right moment, at the appointed time, Jesus Christ comes walking on the water and says to the waves and to the wind, be still. At that moment, the disciples' lives were changed forever. But it took a storm. It took a trial. It took some serious suffering. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you will send somebody. It doesn't say that. It says, will himself perfect, strengthen, confirm, and establish you. There is the promise in the midst of trials, suffering for righteousness sake, that the Lord will come at the right moment. Romans chapter 5 speaks of the same thing. Please go there. Romans 5, another familiar passage regarding trials and tribulations. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Paul again writing says, Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. 
knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and that perseverance brings about proving character, and proving character brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know what God wants for your life? God wants you to not be disappointed. But that means that you've got to have hope in Him and His promises. But what precedes hope, according to this passage, is proven character. And what precedes proven character is perseverance. And what precedes perseverance is tribulations. And so God wanting to develop in us hope that does not disappoint us does often set us on a road of suffering, on a road of trials and tribulations. Not ones you brought on yourself by your own poor decisions, but ordained storms from God because He wants to build in you perseverance and then proving character and then hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Spirit of God. Amen? And I have found in my Christian life that there is no shortcut to proving character. There is no shortcut. God, through the process of suffering, develops these things in us. I have an article here from a missions magazine. And it's about um, a segment of the church in Eritrea, Africa. We spoke about them on the day of uh, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And uh, it's a guy who went over there to do some ministry, and he wrote this article reporting back. And uh, he's talking about the persecution that the church is experiencing there. It's tremendous. And he writes, Some leaders remark that the persecution was a gift from God, driving them to small groups where worship, spiritual growth, and evangelism are the pillars of activity founded on the Word. Listen, these people are being threatened with their very life for worshiping God, and they're saying, oh, it's a gift. Listen further. He was ministering there among the people. And he says, Because of hardship and a poor economy, the Eritreans are not subject to our great sin of entertainment sloth. They have no TVs and movies are expensive. At one youth meeting, I used an icebreaker to get them relaxed before teaching a solid hour. Later, I asked for feedback and heard a unanimous cry against wasting their time with games. Just teach us how to live as Christians, they chided. These young believers were not programmed to think that life is about entertaining themselves. They want to live correctly. Suffering has yielded in them proven character and hope that does not disappoint. They said, don't give us games. Give us the word of God. Give us Jesus. Teach us about the Lord proven character. There's no shortcut to it. And and so I hope that tonight, as American Christians, we maybe grow a little less fond of our comfort and a little more willing to be stretched by God, a little more open to being challenged, a little more open to the possibility of sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom, the work, the expansion of the gospel. Thirdly, We're just about finished. Suffering brings a future reward. Look what Paul said in Romans 8. This is unbelievable. Just a few pages the other way. Romans 8. We rejoice in suffering because there is a future reward. Romans 8, starting verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, the idea being if, as is the fact, we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now look what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, these things that I've experienced in my ministry are not even worthy to be compared with the promises that are ours in heaven. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction? What a stud Paul was. He was beaten with rods five times, three times with lashes. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. All sorts of horrible, gnarly things in his ministry. And he says, ah, momentary light affliction. I don't even consider it worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us in heaven. In other words, nobody's going to get to heaven and go, well, this is a jip. Gosh, I went through all that suffering on earth, all that stuff, and this is it? What a bummer. I expected more, Lord. No one's going to be doing that. That won't be the case. These things that we experience on earth as suffering for righteousness sake are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus in heaven. Jesus said, rejoice when men insult you, persecute you, slander you for my namesake because great is your reward in heaven. There is the promise in suffering for righteousness that there will be tremendous reward. And I venture to say in all humility that it may be true perhaps for the church in America that we will get to heaven and we will see our brethren and sisters worldwide who are suffering for the cause of the gospel. We will see their state in heaven and it may be that we look and go, wow. If only I could have suffered for the cause of Christ. How wonderful. They suffered so much on earth and they are so blessed in heaven. The stuff on earth is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. And number four, suffering can result in the salvation of others. It is a historical and biblical fact that anytime the church is persecuted, the church explodes in growth. The church in places like Eritrea and Sudan and Saudi Arabia and China and Indonesia and North Korea, the church there is growing exponentially. Even though Christians are being murdered and imprisoned, the church is growing exponentially. The church in America is growing extremely slow. But we see from the Word of God and from church history that when there is affliction and suffering in the service of Christ, that there is explosion in the gospel being preached and in the kingdom and people entering therein. It happened in Acts chapter 8. There wasn't much going on. They were still hanging around Jerusalem. Though Jesus had told them to go to the nations. Persecution came and they began to go forth to the nations and spread the gospel. And lastly, and I love this, We rejoice in our suffering because suffering frustrates Satan. I hate him. I hate that guy. 
and suffering frustrates him. When we consider it all joy in various trials, when we suffer for righteousness sake and we do it biblically, Satan is so frustrated in his plans because what he wants to do is rip you off of the joy of the Lord. He wants to get you all bummed out and all woe is me and all oh no and wah, wah and wee wee. But when we have a biblical perspective and when we encounter various trials and we say, okay, Lord, this is gnarly, but I know you are going to work a deep work in my life and perhaps through me as others come to salvation. Lord, as I know this is going to count for your kingdom and there's going to be reward in heaven and you're going to work in me, proving character and hope that does not disappoint, then Lord, I am rejoicing in this. And Lord, show me, open my eyes, teach me, instruct me. What do you want me to know, Lord? When we do that, The plan of Satan for your life is thwarted. He is undone. He is frustrated. And he's the one going, wah, wah. It's wonderful. God is so good. He's so faithful. Christian, be open to moving outside your comfort zone. Again, I believe that as we read Romans 10, 13 through 15, that someone in this congregation was called tonight to be a preacher of the gospel. I don't know if that means in this nation or to the nations, but I believe someone was called tonight. Be open to get outside your comfort zone. Know the promises of God that there will be tremendous reward and there will be suffering. But it's not even worthy to be spoken of in light of the glory that we shall see. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful promises. And Lord, I ask that now as we worship you and draw near to you and commune with you, that you would send your Holy Spirit to make application in our lives. Lord, you know how this text tonight Uh, needs to be applied to our individual hearts and lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you corporately to come and speak to our individual hearts now. You know exactly how to reveal, how to teach, how to rebuke, how to chasten, how to train us tonight. And so, Lord, having received the word now, we want your spirit to have full reign to make personal application in our lives. Church, I invite you this evening as we begin to worship to come and get on your face before the Lord and say, Spirit of God, speak to me. Are you calling me to something? Is there a way that you're calling me outside my comfort zone? Is there a way that I've been putting up walls to protect my comfort when you're calling me to lay it down because there's a work that you want to work in me? I invite you tonight to come forward, get on your knees, get on your face as we worship. Take communion, remember the blood and the body broken and ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want to say to me personally? What do you want to work in me? A couple members of the prayer team will be up here if you need help with something. Let's draw near to the Lord. Let's commune with him and let the Holy Spirit speak to us.